0: Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 60th episode of the Nauticast, entitled The Once and Future King, an analysis of Game of Thrones, John Eight, in which Jon Snow, zombie hunter, is confronted with split loyalties, and here's some very heavy advice on that subject from a secret great, great great uncle Amon Targaryen. Oh, and he also gets a sweet Valyrian steel sword too, I guess. I guess that's important.
1: Yes, this is my very favorite John chapter in book one, so I've been looking forward to it. And all the more so because of our guest this week, insider writer, debunker of Bran as Night King Theories, <laughs> and author of the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones, available now for pre-order on Amazon. Welcome to the Nauticast, Kim Renfro.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Yeah. As you said, I'm an insider reporter, so I do a lot of general entertainment coverage, but I literally only have my job because of Game of Thrones. Really? So, yeah. You, You don't know this story?
0: I think I read something that you put online somewhat recently, but I think our listeners probably don't know this story.
2: Yeah. So back in 2014, I was hired as a temp at a media company called Business Insider, and I was just like an office assistant. And at the same time, I was just super obsessed with A Song of Ice and Fire. And then by proxy, Game of Thrones, I had read all the books back in 2011. And big joke on me, but I was like, oh, I guess I'll just watch the show to pass time and wait until the next book comes out. Right. And now here we are. Um <laughs> it was. So, but yeah, so one of like one of my coworkers kind of picked up on my obsession with the show, and they didn't have anyone on staff who knew much about it. So they told me that I could write anything if I felt like it, and so I started writing articles for the website. They were doing pretty well, and I eventually like asked to transfer full time to reporting. So that was two, three and a half years ago.
0: That's terrific. That's a great story. That's, see, look at, look at Game of Thrones and a song of ice and fire, getting people jobs, helping people to like expand their writing careers. And I believe yeah. speaking of the writing career, you are also the author of a forthcoming book coming out here in the fall time.
2: Yeah. So I am writing the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones. <laughs> so it's going to encompass all eight seasons. I have the bulk of it done, but obviously since season eight is airing right now, i am writing as we go. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that'll be out on October eighth. You can pre-order it now. I'm super excited just because yeah, this this fandom and the community like literally gave me my career. And so I'm excited to kind of give a little piece of that back just in the form of kind of this ultimate compendium to everything that you would want to know about the show um, from how George first conceived of the series to how he met the hbo folks um all the way up until this final chapter in the show
1: yeah that's great i can't wait to read it you guys can pre-order it on amazon now we'll uh, drop the link in this uh, episode description thanks of course and uh yeah it's just it's uh great to have you on specifically during the season because there's such hmm. great energy around the fandom right now especially we're coming off episode two and night of the seven kingdoms which provokes such great emotional reaction in people who love Not only the show, but also the books. I think there was this this outpouring of of just gratitude and catharsis for people who are fans of the books when it came to that episode specifically. So we thought we'd have you on for a... a Episode that's also emotional in its own right, about a chapter that tugs at a lot of heartstrings and also tugged at a a lot of heartstrings when the show did its version of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. Thank you guys for having me.
0: Oh, man, it's going to be a blast. So this episode is going to be fantastic. Cannot wait. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council on Patreon, our hand of the King Wolfman, Zach. Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark M., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Gene, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragons, Scone. It's gotta be Dragon Scone, always Dragon Scone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart, the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, and Lord James, the Jim that was promised. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoilering, as we say in all episodes, will be atten- we'll be potentially talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Chris L, who asks thinking ahead
1: to next year while pre ordering my copy of Fire and Blood, I decided to grab the twenty nineteen A Song of Ice and Fire illustrated calendar. I recommend it, and I'm happy to spend next year listening to your podcast and making plans onto some pretty sweet artwork, like Lady Stoneheart or Brand's Fall. Thing is, there's an image I want to ask your opinions on. Not that it's your responsibility, <sighs> but because I couldn't find answers online and thought that you not a cast guys might be able to answer anyway. Every month has quotes from the book that kinda describe the image, like Stoneheart's has the quote about her multiple names, and Brand's quote is directly from the fall scene. The confusing one is the image for December. I can only identify John because of Longclaw, and based on appearance alone, I can't determine who the rest are or what this moment is. Blonde-haired red priestess? Danny? Who knows? (laughs) Other person? No clue without any context. And the quote is, when you play the game of Thrones, what do you think? Hmm. So the image is, uh, yeah, of Jon Snow clearly with Longclaw, and then what looks like another woman with blonde hair and red robes, and then another uh, female character? Kim, I think you have this calendar, I believe you mentioned.
2: Yeah, I do. And it wasn't until I saw this question that I remembered that it's been sitting on my bookshelf. (laughs) Very much not doing the job of a calendar. Uh, But I, yeah, I went and looked at this because I completely didn't really notice this image when I first bought the calendar. But it reads to me, and you guys are going to have to to probably expand on this it reads to me like it's Jon Snow and Val
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and Alice Karstark oh okay that was who I thought the third person was but like I can't fully place the scene because it's been sadly too long since I've read A Dance with Dragon
0: oh you haven't it's it's the best book though right
2: I know this is I, I shouldn't have admitted that on the first of all places. <laughs> okay. But it is, my, it is my favorite book in the series. But yeah, I haven't had a chance to reread it in a couple of years. Yeah. But is, is that who that, you think – is that who you guys think
0: it is? I That's that's a tough question because I'm trying to remember – and Emmett, you might actually know better than me because I think you've been in the John chapters from Dance a lot more recently than I have. But I don't remember that Alice and Val interacted at Dance with Dragons because if I remember correctly, the chronology – Val goes north right. to Tormund. Giant's Bane comes back in John Twelve with Tormund, and Alice at that point has gone off to Carhold with Sigorn. Um, what is it? He's the Then, right? He is the Then. Um, so I don't. He's the Magnar. The Magnar the Magna then, then. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. My, my fuck ups there. So I, 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 <laughs> I haven't read Dance of Dragons in probably about a year and a half as well. So I'm curious whether this image might be from The Winds of Winter. Perhaps it is a tease of something that will occur in The Winds of Winter. I guess maybe this is John with Val and Dalla from A Storm of Swords, potentially as well. I don't remember if Dala has, is a brunette in Storm, but it could be, I guess. What do you think, Emmett?
1: Yeah, it's a tough call. I don't recall Val and Alice Karstark having any interaction. Like you say, I think they don't meet up on the timelines. Val is, is gone with Tormund while the entire Alice Karstark subplot happens. It does. The image itself doesn't really have any context or setting to it. It just feels like several characters just staring each other down. So yeah, it does that's seem like
2: weird too, the like flat stony plane that they're standing on. Yeah, it looks like yeah, it's kind
1: of abstract. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure. This might be a scene we see seen from Winds, and we just don't have the context for it yet. Yeah, that that would be my you know, I guess. But even then, I'm not I'm not sure who we're looking at here because those those robes do suggest the red priest, but the hair is more like Danny or Val. Maybe you know, Danny gets gets some lore get up. I wouldn't be <laughs> too surprised by that at some point if she starts you know, garbing herself in Melisandre style clothes. So maybe we're getting a glimpse of that that's that's my best guess but it's it's honestly a guess.
2: You know that the image is December 2019, so I'm pretty sure that this just means The Winds of Winter is coming out oh. in December 2019.
0: <laughs> I think we've solved we've it. solved it. There we go. The Winds of Winter 2019. You heard it first on the Nauticast podcast. <laughs> so thank you, sir, Chris, for the question. We really appreciate it. If you guys are interested in asking us questions, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. At the $10 and above level, you are able to ask us questions and we will be forced to Forced to answer on the podcast In addition to the Patreon side, you also get our Game of Thrones season episodes one day before everyone else does. So if you're interested in listening to those episodes on the Tuesday after the Sunday, come join us on Patreon. You can sign up at any level and you will be able to hear the episodes before anyone else in the entire world hears them. So, but... This image is excellent because it helps us to transition directly into this episode for the week. And this episode is all about John's eighth chapter in the Game of Thrones. We are getting very, very close to the end of A Game of Thrones here. John only has one final chapter after this one in this book before we transition into A Clash of Kings. And that's very, very exciting. And this chapter, oh boy, it's a big one. So here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, John 8. John Snow is alive, at least for the time being. His gamble of throwing the burning drapes at the undead author worked. Hooray! Go John! But his victory did come at a cost. Our chapter opens with LC Mormon and Jon Snow conversing in the LC's chambers. Elsie LC Mormon asks John if he's well, and John licenses, yeah, totally fine. I only just got second degree burns in my hand while fighting a goddamn zombie in your own chambers. Lord Commander Mormont, but other than that, right as rain. And hey, Mormont, what's up with your beard? You shaved it off after it got burned in the fire. And now look, you look um old, disreputable and grumpy. And I, I just love the idea of Mormont looking disreputable. It just gives me the giggles. Mormont knows that John isn't being truthful, so he asks after his hand. Well, it's healing, and John flexes the fingers of his sword hand for the first, but definitely not the last time. His hand hurts like motherfucking hell, and John would have scars for life on those hands. But the good news is that at some point, the hand would heal. Besides, Mormont helpfully puts in that John will be wearing gloves most of the time up here at the wall. Ah yes, so very comfy for John. He only had to deal with the agonizing pain that kept him writhing around in his bed at night. Oh, and the PTSD too. He was dreaming about Arthur, but with a fun, fun twist. In the dream, the corpse had fought with blue eyes, black hands, and his father's face, but he dared not tell Mormont that. And John, your hand will return to full function, but guess what or who isn't returning? Benjamin. am I right? I, I am. Daiwa and Hake had looked for Uncle Benjamin, but they hadn't found him. So I hope you're not too torn up about your intense pain, your PTSD, your dreams of net with black hands and blue eyes, or that your uncle is still missing. John knows all this already, as word always spreads quickly in Castle Black to Elsie Mormont's dismay. But enough of these happy topics. John. let's turn our attention now to the apocalypse and the end of all human and animal life at the hands of Winter and the White Walkers. According to Maester Aemon, the cold winds are rising and Westeros is about to endure a winter that the world has never seen before. Winter is coming. The Stark words had never sounded so grim or ominous to John as they did now. But let's detour quickly and talk about the pressing issue of the day. The dismissal of Ser Barristan Selmy from the Kingsguard. Wait, what? Yeah, there was a bird from the night prior from King's Landing, but it hadn't contained information about Ned or Jon's sisters. Instead, Pycelle had sent a letter to the Night's Watch about how Barristan was now a traitor, because that seems very, very important in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't. And this after Mormont had sent two ravens to King's Landing to inquire after Ned and his sisters. But Pycelle hadn't deigned to respond to that message from Mormont. It would not be the first time, nor the last. I fear we count for less than nothing in King's Landing. They tell us what they want us to know, and that's little enough. Way to be the worst, Pycelle. Well, John thinks that Mormont only tells him what he wants to know. And John isn't entirely wrong. Mormont had concealed from John that Rob was marching south. Only Samuel Tarly had bothered to let John know that little detail. Now, John concedes that Mormont probably didn't want him pining after Rob and going off to fight with his brother. But still, it would have been nice to know for John. But anyways, John, let's talk about that burning atrocity that you call your hand again. Will it heal soon? Sure. Soon enough. Mormont nods, adopting the look of a wise old mentor trope. Good. On the table between them, Lord Mormont laid a large sword and a black metal scabbard banded with silver. Here. You'll be ready for this then. John is confused. I know, he's always a little confused. But he's more confused this time. Blood Raven, uh Mormont's Raven, flies down from (laughs) Mormont's head onto the table and squawks at John to take it, take it. But John, still confused, asks what this is all about. What it's all about, you big dodo, is that Mormont is giving you his sword. He doesn't use it these days, and yes, John, you'll need to get the pommel repaired, but It's yours. John takes the sword with his non-burnt hand and pulls the sword from its scabbard. And lo and behold, it's Lightbringer. Oh, another mistake in the notes. It's actually not Lightbringer yet, but it's a very special sword for a very special boy. It has a white wolf's head on the pommel with red eyes. But it's not just your regular old two-hand great sword. It's a bastard blade that's a hand and a halfer, according to John. But then John realizes something else. It's Valyrian steel. Mormont confirms John's suspicions and gives a little backstory about how the sword had been in House Mormont's possession for five generations until Jorah Mormon made the very small minor mistake of selling human beings into slavery to maintain his wife's lifestyle, before running away from Ned's justice like a very brave bear. And then Mormont had done the only decent thing that he had ever done his entire life he had left his family's ancestral sword behind. And then he ran like hell because brave Sir Jorah bravely ran away. But this gift sends John wheeling into memory. He'd wanted to be a brave man doing brave things when he was Bran's age. He'd even imagined saving Ned's life and this resulting in Ned naming Jon a Stark and giving him ice. But even as a kid, Jon knew this was just a child's foolishness. He could never hope to be a Stark, because he's Targaryen, right guys? Right? Right. So Jon tries to return the sword, but Mormont's not having it. I would not be sitting here were it not for you and that beast of yours. You fought bravely, and more to the point, you thought quickly. You see, they all should have known that fire can kill whites. It wasn't that long ago, a mere 8,000, maybe more, maybe fewer years, that the long night had last come, and the Night's Watch should have remembered. Well, John can't really remember what happened 8,000 years ago, but he sure as shit can remember what happened when he dropped a hot mixtape on the undead author. Don't look at me like that, Emmett. The hot mixtape was fiery dreams that he threw at Arthur. It's a metaphor, bro. And then Arthur had burned up to a crisp, thrashing around, melting away until the bone gleamed through. And then whatever demonic force was then gone. And wow, must have been seen. Anyways, about those dreams he's been having of Ned, John has a little more detail about them. Yet in his nightmare, he had faced it again. And this time, the burning corpse wore Lord Eddard's features. It was his father's skin that burst and blackened, his father's eyes that ran liquid down his cheeks like jelly tears. John's scared of the dream, rightfully so, but he pushes that aside when Mormont tells him that the sword is payment for John saving Mormont's life. John finally accepts the sword and knows he should feel honored by it, and yet Mormont isn't his dad. Which, of course, John, he ain't. Lord Eddard is his father, according to John, which, of course, John, he ain't. These are father figures, John. You will learn this in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 1. But as John starts to thank Elsie Mormont, Gior stops him. I want no courtesies either, so thank me no thanks. Honor this deal with deeds, not words. John nods and wonders if the sword has a name. Longclaw, the Elsie responds. John thinks that's a pretty good name. He'll keep it. Besides, wolves had claws too, just like bears. Mormont likes the sound of that, and he urges John to wear the sword over his shoulder like a movie hero would. And you would need to train with Sir Andrew on fighting with a two-handed sword. And who is Sir Andrew? Why, he's Sir Andrew Tarth, our first canonical house Tarth mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire, I believe. He's on his way to Castle Black from the Shadow Tower, and Sir Alistair Thorne is on his way out the door too, on over to Eastwatch by the sea. John is a little puzzled by this, because when isn't he? He asks why Alistair is being sent away. Well, because Mormont ordered it. Alistair is off to deliver the wrist of Jay Flowers, the one that Ghost tore off beyond the wall. He's to bring the wrist to King's Landing to let the court know that there's trouble up on the wall. Won't you help us? You won't? Oh, uh, okay. But there's a secondary reason for sending Alistair to King's Landing. Mormont is putting distance between John and Sir Alistair. John, you did almost stab him that one time in the last chapter, and Alistair, yeah, he did all very much try to provoke said almost stabbing. But summing all the lessons up, go be a man, stop acting a boy, you got a man sword now. Mormont scratches his, stubble, his disreputable stubble jaw and dismisses John to his duties. And that is Game of Thrones John 8. Quite a chapter came into it, but I feel like it's a little incomplete. Okay, we're not done yet. Outside of Mormont's chambers, everyone at a boy's John. John fake smiles back at everyone else, but he's fucking pissed. He's John. He's fourteen, and he has very real feelings. But before he can express these feelings, his buddies jump him. But this time, they don't want to kill him. That was back in John three. He's won their allegiance. What they want is for John to show them his uh sword. Is is that weird? It, it sounds weird when I say it like that. And, <laughs> anyways, John looks at them all, accusing them of knowing. Well, of course they knew. They're not as dumb as Grand. You are so insisted, Grand. You're dumber. And got a hand it to you, Grand. You win this round of Pip and Grand Jape. Halder puts in that he helped carve the stone from the pommel, and Samuel got the garnets from town. But they even knew before that. Don O'Noe was working on it in the forge, and never mind all that. Sword! 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 Let's see your sword, John. Show us your sword. God, that still sounds weird. <laughs> John Long <unsheaths> Longclaw <laughs> and shows it to the boys, declaring it to be Valyrian steel. Pip japes about how John is the first brother to ever be honored for burning down the Lord Commander's Tower, and everyone laughs, except for John. He does manage to smile, but he hadn't truly burned down the Elsie's tower, just kind of gutted a bit. Besides, the fire John started had destroyed Arthur's corpse. But Arthur wasn't alone in doing White Walker work. His white compatriot, Jafer Flowers, had risen from the dead too. And while he, or it, had been cut down by a dozen sword cuts, he, or it, murdered Sir Jeremy Riker, First Ranger, and four other brothers of the Night's Watch. How in the world do you fight something that can keep taking sore hits over and over and over again and still come? John wonders. Jafer's entity had only finally perished when it plunged its own dagger into its bow. But these memories send John into a fouler mood. He lies and tells them that he needs to get Wormont's Supper prepared, sheathes his sword and then makes his way away from his friends very fast and in a hurry. They didn't know about what it was like to face the undead. They didn't know anything about the fighting in the Riverlands. How could they hope to comprehend? John gets back to his chambers and finds Ghost. Yes, Ghost, the direwolf. He is an important part of John's identity, symbolizing his stark side while his dragon riding from season— I shouldn't even go there. Why bother at this point? Anyways, John watches him with his red eyes, and John shows Longclaw to Ghost, letting his direwolf know that the wolf with red eyes in the pommel is him. It's really Ghost who deserves the honors, not John. And this sends John into memory yet again, thinking about finding Ghost outside of Winterfell. He was all alone, apart from the others in the litter. He was different. So they drove him out. Oh, buddy, we know who you're really talking about here, John. But wait, Sam is here now. Does he want to see Longclaw? Did he know about it? Well, Sam was heir to Randall Tarly at one point and got to hold Randall's Valyrian steel sword. Heart's a few times, but he never liked it. The sword always scared him. But he ain't here to talk about all that. Maester Aemon wants to see John. John is suspicious. Why? And Sam, you didn't tell Maester Amon, did you? You didn't tell him that one thing about me knowing that Rob was marching south against the against the Lannisters, right? Right? Oh my God, you did, Sam! God damn it, Sam! Why? Well, Sam didn't want to, but the Maester sees things that no one else sees. He's blind. John practically shouts. But John heads off to Maester Amon's chambers, anyways. John finds the old man at the rookery, giving the ravens bloody strips of meat. He asks Amon if he wants to see him, and Amon says, Yeah, I do. And now come get your hands bloody with me. He tells John to toss the meat into the cages, and the birds will do the rest. John proceeds to toss bloody meat into the cages, as I mentioned, and watches the birds fight over the meat. He wonders aloud at Mormont's bird, who only eats fruit and corn. And Amon, maester bringing the heat, says, He is a rare bird. Most ravens will eat grain, but they prefer flesh. It makes them strong, and I fear they relish the taste of blood. And that they are like men, and like men... Not all ravens are alike. John says nothing, which is smart on John's part, but he wonders why he's been brought here. Aemon goes on to talk about how doves and pigeons can carry messages, but ravens are stronger, larger, bolder, more clever, and can defend themselves against hawks. But ravens are also black. They eat the dead. So the godly don't take kindly to ravens. Baylor the Blessed, one of the Targaryen kings, tried replacing the ravens with doves, but we at the Night's Watch, according to Aemon, prefer ravens. Okay. "'Thanks for that,' John sort of says. "'The wildlings think we're crows.' "'Yeah, they do,' Amon agrees. "'They are both beggars and black, hated and misunderstood. "'John's still always confused. "'Why is he here talking about ravens and crows?' "'Ah, as to that, Baser Amon's got some wisdom to bring. "'John, did you ever wonder why the men of the Night's Watch "'take no wives and father no children?' "'No. "'So they will not love,' the old man answered. "'For love is the bane of honor, the death of duty.' Well, that shit ain't right to John, but he's not about to disagree with the one hundred year old Maester. But Maester Amon sees John. Tell me, John, if the day should come when your Lord Father must needs choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? Ooh boy. John tries to think this one through. Well, Ned wouldn't dishonor himself, but then again he fathered a bastard. He fathered John, right? No, wrong, John, wrong, wrong, wrong. He would do whatever's right, no matter what, John stammers out. And man, I got that old-time religious urge to read all of Amon's lines, but I at least have to read this one, right? Then Lord Eddard is a man in 10,000. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms? Or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind in words. Wind in words. We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. Holy shit. Fucking outstanding, George. Great writing. But Aemon ain't done yet. He states that the Night's Watch doesn't allow wives or children so that the men of the Night's Watch won't be tempted to forswear their vows to defend the realms of men from the darkness to the north. But still, every man in the Night's Watch had brothers, sisters, mothers. Fathers who gave them names, like Aegon. They came from all over Westeros, from a hundred kingdoms before the Targaryens showed up. And damn, John, they kept their vows. When Aegon the Conqueror landed and killed Black Heron of Heron Hall fame, the Elsie of the Night's Watch was none other than his brother, and they had 10,000 men manning the wall that time. Did Elsie Hoare march? No. And that's the way it's been up here for thousands of years. Such is the price of honor. You see, John. honor has its costs. When the sun is shining, the birds are singing, honor seems so damn easy. But sooner or later, the hard day comes. John looks Eamon over and asks whether this is his day or something. Maester Eamon turns and looks John over, and John feels as though Eamon is seeing deep into his heart. He feels naked, exposed. Angry, he throws the rest of his meat into the cages and lets the the birds go wild over the food. Eamon places a hand on John's shoulder. "'It hurts, boy. Oh, yes. Choosing. It has always hurt. And always will. I know.' You know nothing, Maester Aemon. Wait, did John just sort of paraphrase Egret's signature line? Fucking word thief, John. Come on. Aemon sighs and asks John if he thinks his is the first vows that have ever been tested. Aemon shakes his head, and by God, I'm reading this in whole. Three times the gods saw fit to test my vows. Once when I was a boy. Once in the fullness of my manhood. And once when I had grown old. But then my strength was fled. My eyes grown dim. Yet that last choice was as cruel as the first. My ravens would bring the news from the south words darker than their wings, the ruin of my house, the death of my kin, disgrace and desolation. What could I have done, old, blind, and frail? I was helpless as a suckling babe, yet it still grieved me to sit forgotten as they cut down my brother's poor grandson and his son, and even the little children. Who are you? John Whisper asks, almost in dread. Amon smiles a toothless smile and states why I'm only a maester of the Citadel, a man of the night's watch. Don't you know, John? We put our names aside when we don the collar and take our vows, but that's not the full truth. My father was Makar, the first of his name, and my brother Aegon reigned after him in my stead. My grandfather named me for Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was his uncle or his father, depending on which tale you believe. Aemon, he called me. John is flabbergasted. You're freaking Aemon Targaryen? A secret Targaryen here on the wall? Has such a thing ever been done before? Maybe one other time. Amon was a Targaryen once and true, but no more. He turns to John. I cannot tell you to stay or go. You must make that choice yourself and live with all the rest of your days, as I have. As I have. And that is at Game of Thrones, John 8. Wow. W-O-W. Wow. What a Fucking chapter closer, guys. I mean, I don't know. I've maybe out of the mainstream on some of this stuff, but George's let me describe this sword in detail, intimate detail thing, doesn't really tickle my, tickle me in my fancy places. But once George gives the microphone to Aemon Targaryen, this chapter becomes transcendent, brilliant, pathos laden. I love it. I love it so much. This is the best John chapter in a Game of Thrones.
1: I agree. This is the first time I really feel gravitas in this storyline to match what's going down in the South. As we've said before, the individual beats of Jon's A Game of Thrones arc are strong, building him up effectively from scowling outsider to nascent leader of men, but the stakes haven't been especially high. The White Walkers have been off-screen since the prologue, so there's no urgency like in King's Landing. There's no big external issue that Jon has to confront with his newfound inner growth. That all changes in Jon 8, in part because we're coming off a zombie <laughs> attack in Jon 7, but despite the cliffhanger ending of that chapter, the attack itself isn't the central focus of this chapter. Hmm. Instead, John eight looks at John's decision-making and conflicted identity through the lens of the older men around him, Elsie Mormont and even more so Maester Amon. Their discussions give his internal struggle more weight by connecting it to the wider magical and political struggles. So for me, this is where Jon Snow starts to feel like an anchoring protagonist in his own right, hmm. where he starts to work really well in context instead of just in isolation.
2: What did you think, Kim? Yeah, I mean, I... Love Jon Snow to pieces He was one of my One of my favorite characters After I first got through All the Song of Ice and Fire books Um, I'm such a sucker For the like Reluctant hero trope That crops up a lot in fantasy Whether it's you know Aragorn or Harry Potter Uh, Jon I think fits right into that canon And you know He's a little sad boy And (laughs) I have an unrelenting Fictional crush on him That cannot be cured And
1: (laughs) Don't we all True.
2: This, Yeah, this chapter, like you said, is really kind of where we start to see that uh, arc kick off for him. For me, uh, Catelyn's chapter just before this and then John's chapter are both sort of working an echo of the Ned chapter that came before both of them. You know, that chapter ends with the slight cliffhanger of Varys leaving Ned in the dungeons with the choice of Sansa's life or his own. And even though... You know, as you guys discussed really well in uh, your podcast with Lauren, I think that it was pretty clear what Ned was going to do, but we don't actually ever get an answer from him. Yeah. We never get another. We never get another point of view with him. The next time we see him, he's up on the steps of the Sept of Baelor, and he's making his false confession known. And so, throughout Catelyn's chapters, and then now in John's, that unanswered question is sort of hanging there, and we have to think about what Ned is going to do and then in the context of what Catelyn and Rob are doing and now what John is doing. And so to have them both confronted with different different issues of you know family duty or honor, those are the Tully words. So Catelyn and Rob kind of grapple with that in Catelyn's chapter. And now we have John being confronted very directly by Eamon about what comes first, honor or duty or love <laughs> um, and what is the right thing to do. And so, yeah, it's just a really beautiful placement, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree. A lot of what makes... A lot of what makes this chapter great is that it, how well it puts John's story in context of Ned's and you see this great emotional relationship. And like you said, these, these parallel agonizing decisions. They're both looking at each other and wondering, uh, what do I do to get out of here and make this right with this other person? I mean, there's that, that heartbreaking moment in Ned's last chapter where he thinks of John and feels a sorrow too deep for words and just wants to reach him and talk to him. And that's exactly what John wants to do. He, he rides out in this final chapter in part to go, to go avenge Ned. So they're, they're reaching for each other and they're left, they're left with these hard choices. And, and what makes it so painful is that they ultimately don't get to each other. Ned, of course, is executed before he can reach the wall and John makes the decision to stay and this, this, this secret is left unspoken and this wound is just still open.
0: It, it really, really is. And when I look at it in sort of the broader context of the placement of this chapter, I always find it fun to like look at how George places things chronologically where he does in the book. As we know, George doesn't write chapters in the order that we read them, often writing in one point of view for several chapters before switching to another point of view. But then he orders and then often rearranges and reorders them, which became a big deal for A Feast of Crows and Dance with Dragons, those chapters to best fit the story that he's telling. And here, I think that John 8 is placed precisely correct by George in the narrative. It's at the tail end of a five-chapter prelude to The War of the Five Kings – Westeros is getting ready to fight itself, and while the Stark and Stannis, of course, we have to drop our Stannis reference here, I <laughs> are the causes <laughs> are the just ones, does it really matter who sits the Iron Throne when dead men come hunting in the night? And that's something that has been being addressed currently in Game of Thrones Season 8, as we just finished Episode 2, where you have that really interesting discussion in the crypts of Winterfell between Jon and Daenerys. And that's why this chapter, John 8, picks up right where it does – It's a cue to us as readers to show us that even though everyone is getting ready to go to war against each other, the threat of the Others or the White Walkers hangs over all. The Others aren't going to care if you're a Stark or a Lannister. Winner's coming for everyone. So here we're reminded of the truth of the Others. And then, of course, next week we have a Danny chapter to remind us of the potential salvation that might be found for Westeros and for all of humanity.
2: I think that that fits really well. Because, right, so for John if we think about John's story in terms of the very typical structure of the hero's journey, which is a very standard sort of trope in a lot of fantasy fiction, there needs to be a like call to adventure or a call to action, or sometimes it's called the inciting incident. And John's could have very easily been Ned's death and him riding south. like That could have Hmm. been the entry point for his adventure story. But that's Rob's. That's what Rob's journey is all about. And so the fact that this chapter kind of roots John's choice in this fight beyond the wall is what really pushes his storyline into that sort of isolated. I'm now focused on this threat coming from beyond the wall. And I can't think about what's happening down South anymore. Um, And that also plays into this, uh, this other trope, which I learned about when I took a college course (laughs) in children's literature. Um, Yeah, it was just like an elective. It was one of the few classes that started at like 8.30 at night, which was when I had to go to school for most of the time. Um, But it wound up being super fascinating. But we had an entire section that was just titled First Kill the Parents. Hmm. And I was like, what? And then my teacher pointed out, which is something that I thought about all the time growing up, like watching Disney movies, like why is at least one or both parents are dead in almost every Disney movie? It crops up all the time in fiction. There are constantly protagonists who are orphans and that's usually the case if they are young kids or like teenagers the thought behind this is that your younger protagonist can't possibly go on some big life-altering dangerous mission if their parents are around hmm. because then as an author you have to somehow work in a reason why their parents are letting them go risk their lives or like disappearing for months at a time. Um so usually the solution to that problem for a lot of writers is just kill the parents. <laughs> um and a lot of the time those protagonists start out without their parents. Sometimes it's the inciting incident. And that's the really brilliant thing I think about what George did and I think I saw a Reddit post back in the day about this. I should try and find it. But like he kind of backed into the story of the Stark children. So by starting out with Ned and with King Robert coming and naming Ned the Hand, you kind of think that Ned is the focus of the story and that we're following him as he goes into King's Landing and he's the one who's sort of on an adventure. Um, But what it turns out is that Ned's death then sets all of his children off on their own adventures. Mm -hmm. And we have Sansa and Arya both kind of like on their own, effectively, in very different scenarios. Rob is with Catelyn for a little while, but then they both die at the same time. Obviously, RIP. Um, and for John, I think it's interesting because John kind of gets a double dose of kill the parents because not only are his birth parents dead, but then Ned also gets taken from him as well. Um, so yeah, I just think like I think that that's one of the many ways that Martin has like very brilliantly subverted tropes is that he. Could have started out like I can. I can totally see a version of A Song of Ice and Fire where like the book jacket description says like their father has been executed and the Seven Kingdoms are in chaos. Rob and Sansa and bram and Arya <laughs> and Jon Snow. Sorry, Rickon, you're a baby. I'm not going to count
3: you. <laughs> but like
2: Arya and Jon Snow are opposite corners of the realm fighting for a chance to be a family. Like that's a that's totally a fantasy story that could exist. Mm-hmm. But that's not. George's story he has very intentionally I think worked his way around all of these tropes in a way that is super it's very compelling because it's often what you aren't expecting
1: yeah it's a it's a great point I think yeah Ned could have been like Rhaegar and Lyanna he could have been a completely backstory character that you just hear about in bits and pieces and form a a puzzle of his story in your brain instead of someone you actually experienced the first book with as, as we get and part of the effect of that is just grounding you emotionally in what it feels like for John once he's gone. Because as you say, he's gotten this double dose of, of kill the parents. And so then you get this endless parade of father figures who are kind of, but not really filling that void. Almost, but not quite. All of them have these problems and all of them are kind of projecting onto John what they want him to be and, and trying to make mold him into their legacy when he's, he's never quite in line with what they want him to be. Whether you're talking Mance Raider, whether you're talking Stannis, um, whether you're talking Benjamin at the beginning. In this chapter, we get a lot of that. We, we start off with uh, the focus on, on Gior Mormon. As with Tyrion's last chapter, letting us know right away he successfully hoodwinked the clans. This chapter immediately, literally tells us John's okay. <laughs> it opens with Mormon asking if John is well just to get it out of the way. And while we get a vivid flashback to the corpse burning as well as learning about the gruesome showdown with the other one, as Jeff outlined, that's not really the focus here. The focus on this scene is how this attack has just shaken Elsie Mormont to his core. And now he's taking refuge in John as his literal savior from the night before, but also his, his surrogate son and his successor. He's trying to regain his composure and he's only partially succeeding. He's asking if John's well... He's noting he can cover up his burns with black gloves, which is a little detail I like. Because on the one hand, that's a subtle reminder of his suddenly urgent. <laughs> he's like, yeah, put on the black gloves and that black cloak and that black sword. Put on all your black. You're a night's watchman. Get ready Get ready to work. But it's also a connection to the black hands of the whites. That John is now kind of the, the, turning himself into this reminder of the enemy he now, now knows is out there.
2: Mm-hmm. I love, it's also like if you just kind of the imagery of John pulling the black over his hand. There's all of this talk among the Night's Watch that like once you take the black, all of your past deeds are forgiven. And so Hmm. the Night's Watch kind of covers up any sort of ugliness of your past. So John has this like very literal ugliness on his hand, but all of his brothers, a lot of them also have done terrible things, but that gets kind of negated once you don the black and there are a lot of jamie parallels i think Hmm. in this chapter with john um that same line about the glove reminded me of that really great shot we got in the season seven finale of jamie pulling a black glove over his golden hand Hmm. right as snow began to fall in king's landing um yeah that's perfect yeah that's great i really want jamie to wind up with some sort of connection to the night's watch but we'll see it makes perfect sense
1: He wore the white cloak. Why shouldn't he be involved in some capacity wearing the black cloak? And the Kingsguard is an interesting parallel to the Night's Watch in a lot of ways, as we'll get into a little bit later in the episode. But yeah, I love Mormont in this scene. He's just muttering asides (laughs) to himself. Like he's just complaining about the birds. And how come everyone knows everything around here before I tell anyone but it's clearly just covering up his shame like he's trying to distract himself from this pain he feels we should have known we should have remembered
0: yeah i mean mormon's trying to rationalize himself and he's trying to distract himself a little bit too in the way that some people i i, I remember seeing experiencing some trauma in my own life and like the first thing i did that night was i went into like like a variety show essentially so That was what I did as as, as my distraction here. But far be it for me to not criticize Papa Bear, but 8,000 years is a long fucking time for him to be like, we should have known, we should have remembered. And I get it that part of the narrative focus of this chapter and of the Night's Watch as an entity – is that they should remember their original purpose. Their original purpose is not to fight wildlings and to defend the wall against them. At the same time, though, the last long night was 8,000, 5,000, something however many thousands years ago. I mean, it'd be like if the Sumerians reappeared, the ones from present-day Iraq, and we just backhanded ourselves and exclaimed, we should have known. We should have remembered that we need to use slings and javelins to win against chariot warfare. (laughs) Like, how did we forget this very basic concept? So, I mean, I don't want to, like, defend Jorah, Jorah Mormont too much, but at the same time, I think think we can give him a little pass here, at least for that.
1: It's not rational. I mean, he's talking about longstanding institutional problems that he could not have solved overnight, even if he had the information to do so. But on a more personal level, you know, all the fears he expressed to Tyrion when the latter visited the Wall have come true. And he, of course, he thinks it's his fault. He's got to be thinking. He's not thinking to himself, "Wow, this is a long-standing problem, and I have to try to steer the ship in a better direction." He's thinking to himself, "Wow, nine hundred ninety-six lords commander before me managed to get the job done. Will I be remembered as the one who <laughs> let it fall apart?" He's wondering if he's wasted his entire life, made all the wrong choices, and what he's going to leave behind. And the genius is, that's exactly what Maester Eamon is wondering. And as Kim pointed out, that's what Ned is wondering in his cell. It's these same questions uniting all these storylines. Speaking of Ned, he himself, as Jeff outlined gruesomely in his, his summary, has become the walking dead in Jon's nightmares, which just poor kid. <laughs> like a literal zombie attack is not enough. He's got to have these horrible dreams when he finally can cover up the pain in his hand enough to get to sleep. And this gets at something we've talked about before, and we're talking about in our review of the latest episode of Game of Thrones, A Night, in the Se- a Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And that's how Martin uses the Whites and the others as metaphors for the people who haunt us. The loss and obsession that either brings out the best of us, in Ned's case, or the worst, in the case of someone like Tywin Lannister, Hmm. given... As uh, his brother says about him, the, the best that was in him died with Joanna, and it's just this husk that's left behind. And I think you can see that in the show as well, albeit more visually. You can see the connection drawn between the ice magic of the White Walkers and the crypts of Winterfell, but also the speech Sam gave in Season 8, Episode 2, about how the White Walkers represent not only death, but the loss of memory and hmm. and meaning and everything you want in your life, everything that makes life worth living. And that that metaphorical zombie dynamic is also at work with institutions like the Night's Watch or the Kingsguard, since Kim brought up Jamie, or at really the ultimate extreme, the Unsullied. It's this severing of your humanity and individuality. And look no further than how callously the LC said to Tyrion earlier in the book that John and the other young ones just need to forget <laughs> their homes and families. Just, just, just put them out of your mind. That's just... I mean, that really is the dark side of G.R. Mormon. Mm -hmm. He's a sympathetic character in many respects, and he has a genuine paternal fondness for John and arguably for Sam as well. But he has this gigantic blind spot about the institution to which he's devoted himself, not only in terms of class background, as we said regarding his somewhat pie-in-the-sky-we-are-all-one-great-house-now speech in John 6, but also just the demands it makes on your humanity to wear that black cloak or that white cloak. It just... It sucks a lot
0: out of you. Wow, they make you swear and swear vows, as Jamie says, in <laughs> Clash of Kings. And you kind of wonder whether George is choosing to emphasize Mormont's blind spot regarding the institution of the Night's Watch. Whether that works to, as intentional on in George's part, to set the foundation for what's going to happen in the Clash of Kings and Mormont's great ranging. Now, there's obviously a big wall of difference. Get it? Get it? <laughs> I win. I Get win because Kim laughed. Even if, even if, is this
2: why you brought me here uh-huh. so that I would laugh at all the all, jokes all the, that all the stupid it won't?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it's all making sense yes. <laughs> at long last. Someone, someone to validate me. But yes, there's a big wall of difference between Mormont's words to John, and Tyrion, and Sam down the road, and the mission creep of the Great Ranging. But the flawed manner figure to John works in tandem with Mormont as a flawed Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, with the original mission of the Great Ranging a mission to be a personal, a personnel recovery mission of Benjamin Stark, which then becomes let's kill Raider and all the wildlings. And you do kind of wonder whether Mormont's lofty ideals of the Night's Watch inevitably lead to his overconfidence that nearly gets everyone killed. Like Emmett was saying, Mormont is wondering whether he's going to be the final, the last Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And he damn well sure tries at A Clash of Kings to be the final Commander of the Night's Watch.
1: Even as he dies, he's still insisting to his killers, no, I'm the Lord Commander, you have to listen right. to me. Even as they've just murdered their host, clearly indicating they do not give a damn about any of these rules anymore, and they are starving and terrified and violent most of them and but Mormont to the end thinks he can make this institution work and it's it's really sad because he has these good intentions but he can't do it and so you know how does how does the old bear intend to resolve this challenge to his worldview how else do you cut the gordian knot but with a big old shiny sword and uh there's a lot going on with Longclaw, and i think it, it, it gets at some of what kim was talking about in terms of how morton handles tropes because in terms of just the characters of course this is the lord commander's way of thanking john for saving his life because you know, gruff old men can't just say thank you. So you have to you, you have to have some kind of tool involved. so You can process your emotions through that. It's it's his way of publicly declaring that John is Lord Commander in waiting, and everyone immediately mm. behaves like that when John leaves the room. Everyone's smiling and nodding, and every, everyone gets the score. I think at that point, it's also uh, the L.C.'s way of merging Stark and Mormont heritage into a single weapon for the Watch. It's you know, it's both the wolf and the bear sword. A, a claw can uh, suit either animal, as John says. It's united for the realm. So it's kind of a physical representation of his belief that you can put all these families together for one purpose. On a more personal level, though, of course, this is his way of exercising his demons about Jorah. Mm-hmm. Because Jorah is definitely the restless ghost in the LC's mind, just like Ned is the restless ghost in Jon's mind. Or Lyanna is the restless ghost in Ned's mind. So this is... I think this is Mormont's way of trying to just process and get catharsis from Jorah once and for all by passing the sword on it was once his to a new son figure.
2: Yeah, given how... Rare and expensive, or like expensive, quote unquote, we know of Valyrian steel is like for someone to just like stuff it under their bed <laughs> and pretend like it doesn't exist for a very long time what, like over a decade at least?
0: At least, I'm,
2: yeah, yeah. I'm like, come on, man, that's a very valuable weapon you got there. But
1: I do, I do love that he it says he forgot it, like, yeah, you forgot uh, your house. sure. Ultimate artifact. You forgot this source of shame. Yeah, you just, you just put it out of your mind, buddy. It's just such a transparent lie because Mormont's compartmentalizing because he can't mm-hmm. really deal with this pain right. in the same way that he can't really deal with the pain of what's happening to the Night's Watch. And that's that's what really informs the scene because you've got like the fantasy protagonist getting his big shiny sword and it's a sword that stands in for the Night's Watch itself. It was this sleeping sword in the darkness forgotten in the corner and now it's been brought back to life by the collision of ice and fire. Like this should be John's big step into the spotlight moment and it doesn't actually work. Hmm. The gift of Longclaw makes John spiteful, not grateful. It makes him sad, not happy. It contributes to him trying to run away from the watch in the next chapter. He doesn't feel home here at last because of it. And why is that? It's because of his messy, unresolved humanity. Because of his connections to home and family that both Elsie and Mormont and Maester Eamon have sacrificed. So he immediately recoils inside. He realizes this is not the sword he wants. This is not the father he wants. And the old bear is hiding the truth about his real dad from him. John sees the sword not as an honor, but as this... As like a bride. Like this horrible (laughs) soul-stealing bride. Here's cold, hard steel as a replacement for the warmth of a brother's smile and a father's love. No feelings, no backsees. I mean... Mormont's intentions are good, but I felt on reread like this is the equivalent of Mance being stripped of his unique red silk cloak in favor of another blank slate black one, which really broke Mance as a Night's Watchman and convinced him he had to go live among the wildlings when he realized, oh, they don't want me to be a person. They don't want me to have individual experiences. They just think of me as a cog in a machine. And that's what the sword makes John think of. And that's... It's, it's in spite of the heartwarming detail that so many of Jon's brothers contributed to the remaking of that sword, which I love that. But, you know, Sam had the garnets and Halder helped shape the stone. It, it makes it a gift from all of them. And that's an expression of devotion to him personally. Jon Snow, their friend who helped them. Not just the abstract concepts of, of duty and brotherhood and sacrifice and not as a replacement son. But it's it's not enough for Jon. He just he just he feels just angry and confused and he's just lashing out.
2: I totally get Our sad boy, John, being so mad right now. Well, because, like, yeah, especially rereading it a couple times, Elsie Mormon is being so cavalier about Hmm. this. And obviously, like, I think it's clear that he's, like, trying to put on a front and just, like, not make this a bigger deal than it really is. But it is a big deal. And John recognizes that it's a big deal. And I think Lord Commander Mormon's refusal to treat it with any sort of, like, ceremonial, grace or like really let it be an emotional moment between them i think that might also be part of what really pisses john off because in his dreams about one day getting ice from ned it was always like under some glorious circumstances like what he did with lord commander where he saves his life and then the sword is bestowed upon him but ned obviously never would have been like Hey, you can have the sword now.
1: (laughs) I left it in the closet. I forgot about it. Yeah. I I guess you can have it.
2: Yeah. Like, please don't, please don't say thanks or anything. Just, just take it. You can leave now. Like that's, that was never how John ever imagined that scene playing out in his mind. And so for, for it to be happening in a different, unexpected way and to, to have it be this like, kind of like throwaway thing that Lord Commander Mormon's trying to turn it into. Like, of course that. Pisses them off because he's like john john is obviously like the kind of 14 year old kid who like needs to be pampered a little <laughs> bit and like told what a good boy he is and like you're trying so hard and you did good things like he i think that he needs that external validation and while he is getting it in a way i don't think that he's getting it in the way that he wanted
0: yeah if that makes sense. no that makes a lot of sense i mean uh, when i look at the gifting of the sword it reminds me a lot of the scene from Return of the King where uh, fucking what's his name? The elf lord. Elrond. Legolas? Oh, God. Elrond, oh, L- right. We're Elrond. Sorry,
2: Legolas is my other fictional crush, so I assumed that you were talking about Legolas. There
0: you go. Le- Legolas. We're Legolas. <laughs> where Elrond gives him the sword of real And this is a moment for Aragorn where he's like, ah, well, they'll remember the sword from here on out. But John's angry about it. and. You know that John that that sword comes to symbolize a lot of things. You know, in John's penultimate chapter in *The Dance with Dragons*, he's wielding a sword in the form of Lightbringer because it's a flaming sword, and he's not using it to defeat. Well, he is sort of. He's not using it necessarily to do, wield it for for the good of the realm. He's using it to strike off Rob's head and to kill Rickon and Bran and all of these people. So. That sword has a very different purpose in the narrative for John. It symbolizes a lot of negative things for John. And I think that's really good subversion of a trope. It's not that George in this chapter wants to be like, ah, this is meaningless, this is stupid, let me show you how stupid this is. But rather he changes the meaning of the sword to make it something that inspires anger in John that makes him out to be very pissed off because he thinks that he's being bribed to stay in the Night's Watch and really... He is being bribed to stay in the night's watch by Bormont here. Mormont sees John as a potential successor figure to him. Mormont is 68 years old at the start of a Game of Thrones. He knows he's probably not long for the world, and in fact, he's actually not long for the world. So he needs that sort of successor figure to stand up for him when he passes on. But it doesn't really give John much satisfaction in giving in having the sword. Now, of course, he plays it off to Bormont and being like, Thank you for the sword, sort of thing. I'll keep it the name Longclaw. But at the same time, it's really doing work for Jon's characterization in the Game of Thrones and sort of setting the foundation for him in his future arc and what he's going to be like in The Winds of Winter, which is going to be a very different character than what we saw in Season 6, Season 7, and Season 8 of Game of Thrones.
1: You brought up his Azor High dream in A Dance with Dragons, and I love the connection to Longclaw there. You know him using a lightbringer sword to murder his family and murder those those restless ghosts we were talking about because that's basically what he feels like he's being asked to do here. That the sword is going to sever, literally or metaphorically, his ties to home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's designed to to cut off Rob's head in the sense that it's designed to cut John off from Rob and destroy their relationship. And uh, John senses that deep down, even as he can't quite articulate it, and the pain he's feeling is not only about being asked to give up his Stark identity, but it's also about. The fact that his stark identity itself was always this agonized, Hmm. complicated thing that he never got closer on and he was never able to fully figure out. When when he's he's thinking about Ghost, as you say, he's clearly talking about himself. (laughs) He was all alone, he thought, (laughs) apart from the others in the litter. He was different, so they drove him out. To the extent that that's true, I mean, it's it's partially true when it comes to to Catelyn and I guess maybe Sansa's somewhat snide treatment of him. But, of course, John decided to go to the Night's Watch. Mm -hmm. So so he is somewhat lying to himself, but he is expressing an emotional truth about how it felt at Winterfell and how difficult it is to try to to process those feelings now.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not just... Like, he's not just turning this bitterness onto his family. I think that he's also dealing with how, like ashamed he feels Hmm. about those wishes and desires that he used to have. Like when he thinks about that dream of saving Ned and getting ice, he immediately thinks like what kind of man would steal his own brother's Hmm. birthright. So all of his ties about what he wanted from Ned and what he wanted from his place at Winterfell are tied into like a feeling of shame because of how close he yes. was to rob and now he knows that rob is the one publicly marching to defend ned and trying to save his life which is the thing that john always dreamed about and now he can't do a thing because he chose to isolate himself and go to the wall if he hadn't if he hadn't taken the black he would have been at rob's side yeah and so i think that he's feeling shame over wishing for that glory that rob is in his mind getting right now and then feeling shameful over wishing that he had that. And so it's just like all tangled up and it's so Like I'm like, of course you're a 14 year old boy and you feel (laughs) like all these things. I think people give characters like John and like, I mentioned Harry Potter before, like Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix is so moody and mad and just like shitty to his friends. And a lot of people hate that book. And I, love it because i'm like hell yeah give me like pissed off hormonal 15 year old wizards <laughs> who are like rightfully pissed off about stuff and i feel the same way about john and a lot of these things like the way that he takes his anger out on sam right away makes a lot of sense to me like sam's his best friend i think john ultimately can trust that like he's not doing like irrevocable damage to his relationship with sam by lashing out at him a little bit but george specifically has a line about like when when he describes sam coming to get john he says he was wrapped in a heavy fur cloak that made him look ready for hibernation (laughs) and i feel like that like it just like triggered john to be like oh you're just like another bear and like just kind of like (laughs) snips at him and like runs
1: away. I think the comparison to Harry Potter and Order of the Phoenix is great, because yeah, that's where he gives the whole, I don't want to be a human anymore speech to Dumbledore, when Dumbledore says the pain you're feeling is just part of being human, and Harry wants to reject it. And yeah, it's it's easy to kind of keep that at arm's length and snigger at it, but those are definitely emotions everyone's felt at some time in their life, and you're just not particularly good at articulating it when you're that age, and that's just accurate to characters of that age. And I think there's a statement in here about the fantasy genre that, that shiny swords... Or, you know, prophetic importance in the case of Harry Potter. It should be used to spark character dilemmas rather than solve mm. them. You know, those, those things are not substitutes for actual character development. And John kind of knows that. Even if, again, he can't articulate it properly, properly, he realizes, oh, I'm not grown up now. When I get this sword the way I thought I would be grown up from getting ice, this didn't actually contribute to my growth as a human being. And so I feel empty. So th- this for me is deconstruction done well. It's not just taking pot shots of tropes in a, like a, you know, a sins ding kind of way. It, <laughs> It reveals the need for a deeper emotional truth, and then it unabashedly, unironically pursues it. And the deeper emotional truth here is that John does not need a new sword or a new dad. He needs someone to be honest
0: with him, as Ned can never allow himself to be. And that's that's where Maester Eamon comes in. Yeah, it's just a brilliant narrative term on Martin's part to have the contrast here with mormon expressing his gratitude with to john through the sword and john angrily accepting it at the same time though feeling very uh, shameful as 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 kim pointed out about his desires for ice and that's something that is going to be continuing john's arc going for but yeah Amon... Coming into the narrative is fascinating because we are starting to get a very different perspective about what the Night's Watch means. And I think it's really interesting that Amon's point of view is a bit different from Mormon's point of view, and it's all about the greater good.
1: Yes, and while Amon's worldview has its own shortcomings, as we'll get into in a bit... He's more honest with John about the pain and confusion he's feeling than the old bear was. First of all, his gift is not a big shiny hero sword. It's bloody strips of meat. It's a bucket <laughs> full of blood. Fun. John's John's fingers are in the bucket, blood up to the wrist. So in and, and part, I think the contrast between Longclaw and that is about Sandor's nihilistic mission statement in Book Two: Swords are for killing. Strong arms and steel swords rule this world. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. You know, that's that So thing. emo it is. It is. I mean, that's. I think Martin is trying to connect the the big shiny sword to the bucket of blood oh, in that way. Long Claw is a marvel of craftsmanship, but it's also an instrument of death. John compares it to ice, which will, of course, soon be covered in its owner's blood. <laughs> You know, it's, it's the prophecy is a sword without a hilt. Your swords will turn on you. But it's also about metaphorical blood, the bonds of family, with which Jon is wrestling now and with, a- with which Amon has wrestled for so long, as he says. And the birds, meanwhile, are just, just want to eat everybody. They just want to eat all, eat all the meat in the world, regardless of who it is. And that's kind of the thesis of A Feast for Crows from the title on down, is that war and mortality in general just devour all these distinctions, devour everything. Just like how the Night's Watch or the Citadel, as Maestro Aemon points out, erases your name.
2: Mm -hmm. I also love like ravens are birds that are often associated with prophecy um, Mm -hmm. in myth, especially like the Greek god Apollo. But there's also, you know, Odin and Edgar Allan Poe's books and Neil Gaiman's books more recently. Um, So I really I've always loved that the ravens are present and so much a part of this scene because there are so many links to Rhaegar and hmm. with Aemon and how we know that he knows about the prince that was promised, prophecy, and just all of these like little thematic things that George knitted together for this scene are really great.
0: Yeah, and also I love, too, the fact that When John and Eamon are talking, George makes a very small note there that some of the birds are eating the food, but some of the birds are very attuned to what's going on in the conversation. And to me, that kind of gets my neck hairs rising because I'm thinking that, this is Blood Raven, the three eyed crow or three eyed raven in the show, listening in on the conversation and seeing how John is going to react to the things that Amon is talking about. Because things are kind of getting a little dicey for John. The walls are closing in on him.
1: Yeah, and I-, I love the idea of these birds being associated with prophecy as they're eating up all this meat and eating everyone alive. Because one of the points made in the series is that. Prophecy just devours you whole. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make you more powerful. I mean, it might make you more powerful, but it's not going to make you more complete as a human being. It's not going to get you what you really want. It's just going to use you up and spit you out. And yeah, these, as Jeff said, these are the walls closing in on John. The fading bonds of, the fading bonds of family, the horrors of war and death, and his just anger and helplessness as the two converge in the South. As Kim said, this is kind of what he wanted to take part in, and now it's going on far to the South where he can't do anything about it, and he just has to watch the way Eamon just had to watch. And Elsie Mormont just is telling Jon to just get over all of this, similar to how Anakin Skywalker's mentors told him to repress his love and his fear of death. How'd that work
0: out? <laughs> Let's ask the younglings. <laughs>
1: exactly. A bunch, bunch of dead kids later. So Aemon acknowledges the contradiction there and tries to explain it. And while I don't entirely agree with his conclusions, I appreciate that he makes the effort. His argument is that the Night's Watch is meant as a tempering force on humanity, at large and within the individual soul, in service of the greater good. Our passions leave us vulnerable to, quote, the darkness to the north. Our wars are born of attachment, of love. And so, like with Azor Ahai and Nissa and Nissa, love must be purged to force the true steel. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Again, you can see a metaphor in the others using the, the restless walking dead as their soldiers. Amon is saying John must leave his ghost behind in order to grow up. And there is something coldly admirable about that devotion, the attention to duty and discipline and self-sacrifice, the vision of a continent united for the benefit of all, but it's just lacking in basic hmm. humanity, which which makes it not only repellent on some level, but also just doomed to fail, as we see again and again in this story. This worldview has no explanation of a Jamie Lannister caught among contradictory oaths. It has no answers for Mance Raider, who is forced to fight and hate his people, rather than defend and forget them. This worldview demands that you be a duty robot, and if you fail, it's because you're weak, hmm. rather than the demand being fundamentally wrong in the first place. There's that small moment in this chapter that's so important when Eamon says, love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. And Martin has John think, that did not sound right. And good, it shouldn't, because more often than not, this this process produces not perfect paragons, but broken men, as they're called in the series. And even when you do finally get a genuine paladin for the people, namely Beric Dondarrion, it comes at cost of his soul. There's that great monologue, can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle on the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry, but I could not find that castle today, nor tell you the color of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother Thoros? That's That's what the Night's Watch does to you. That's what these institutions do to you. Suddenly you can't remember what it was like to be a person, what it was like to be an individual, the life you wanted to live. It's it's all gone. and You can see even the inversion of that with with Barristan's dismissal when he was listing the life he'd given up to join the Kingsguard. I, I gave up the woman I was to marry my inheritance, and now it's all coming crashing down on him.
0: Yeah, I think that's really, that's a f- fabulous parallel between the stories. And I do think you also have to consider as well the great theory that our friend LML came up with, which has John, when he returns, potentially becoming a cold hands like figure, losing his memories, being, not having, not being able to taste food being able to go on forever and ever. And yes, that might be what ends up saving the world, but it comes at significant cost to John and to Barak and to Coldhand seemingly. And that cost is at the cost of their humanity. And I think that's so important for John. And I think it's metaphorical here that you're like supposed to forget these bonds of family that you have, or not just forget them, but put them aside, put love aside, put all these things aside. But Amon And we find out in A Feast for Crows, Aemon, his last thoughts are not about his duty and how he's done all these wonderful, glorious things for the Night's Watch. His last thoughts are of Rhaegar, of his family, of Egg. I dreamed that I was old. I mean, that's what Aemon is thinking about in his last moments. So I don't think that Aemon is necessarily just out and out lying to Jon here, but I think he is suppressing a lot of his humanity that comes to the fore in his very final moments in the books.
1: And there's this great irony where Eamon is talking about this man in 10,000 who would put his duty above his love and implying that it's Ned Stark based on Unjohn trying to defend him as such. But of course, we know that that's exactly the opposite of the truth about Ned Stark. Ned actually risked it all for love. And I don't reject him for it. I love him for it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And he's about to do it a second time, which is something that neither Eamon or John could possibly know. But like, he's literally sitting in a cell contemplating right now that he's about to stand in front of the entire realm and call himself treasonous when that's not true, but he's going to do it for his family. And so the fact that the two choices Ned makes with the biggest lasting consequences are the ones where he places love above all else is meaningful and we know that and the tragedy is that John doesn't and he won't for a while hopefully you know we know that he will eventually but for now he's left he's left thinking of his father in a way that is completely antithesis to where to what he actually is like the hmm. fact that the first thing that John thinks is like well my father sired a bastard so like maybe he's not the man I thought he was and it's like no, he didn't <laughs> He didn't but you don't know that and so yeah i think and like we we see that in ned's chapter when he goes to cersei with the truth and he specifically before he speaks with cersei he thinks about what barristan would do and so that's like the sir barristan reference in this chapter i think is also kind of there so that we ping like this reference to yeah. another very yeah. like honorable and dutiful man um and yeah, so in Ned's chapter, when he is about to speak with Cersei, he thinks about what Barrison would say and he's he says that Barrison would just advise him to do his duty. And then he he thinks that honor is going to require him to go to Robert with the truth. And then he thinks of the children. And so it's just all of these these layers coming back into what Eamon is trying to get John to really dig at. Um, and same thing, like I mentioned before, how Catelyn's chapter is also working in tandem with John's chapter here. The house Tully words are family, duty, honor, and it specifically puts family above hmm. both duty and honor, which is an inversion of sort of what they're expecting the Night's Watch to do. And Rob is always described as like a little more Tullyish ish than John is. And it's interesting to see how how Rob grapples with those uh, with those house words. And how he eventually puts his duties and honor and love with Jane Westerling over what, you know, the option that he might've had otherwise. And yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's a fantastic point. And you can even see like a further folding in of this concept when you think about John's actual father in the form of Rhaegar Targaryen, because when it came to honorable conduct versus love, what did he do with Lyanna Stark when he had his wife, Elia Martell at the tourney of Harrenhal, he passed her by and went to Lyanna Stark. So when I look at these conversations and I look at John thinking about his father, his father, who he thinks is his father, I always have to think about that George is communicating a deeper subtextual message about who Rhaegar Targaryen was as well as John's actual father. And how Rhaegar's example, even if it's not explicitly put in John's personality, does come out over and over and over again here. And we have the character like Egret. Who John genuinely loves when he encounters her in Clash and Storm of Swords.
2: Mm-hmm. I also just love John's non-answer of he would do whatever is right. right because, like, that's an oddly smart answer. Even though John kind of like accidentally spits it out, but it's also it's also dodging the question because well, what is the right thing? what do, What would Ned think is the right thing to do? What do you think is the right thing to do? And it, it kind of challenges us to think about those scenarios and you know is upholding your honor the correct thing to do or is protecting your family and again back to jamie like what was the right thing to do Hmm. when the mad king ordered him or ordered him to stand there and watch the entire city burn he chose to kill the king everyone else thinks that that was the wrong thing to do but he thinks it was the right thing to do is that dishonorable Hmm. Yeah, I love
1: I love that line from John because as you say, it's basically meaningless. He's just saying it to to make himself feel better in the moment, but it doesn't actually answer the question. Mm-hmm. And that's at the core of Jamie's critique, and in his own way the core of Sandor's critique, which is mm-hmm. that all of Westerosi society is built on this message that the rules are clear and easy to follow, so if you don't follow them, it's because you personally suck. <laughs> There's all these people trying trying to point out that, hey, that's not how it works. That actually these demands aren't just intense they're impossible we can't live up to them it's not just that we're failing to so there has to be a, a rethinking of these values and how, how to live through them and Eamon of course has dealt with that question all his life and he's, he's trying to communicate that to John here and so it's so it's not as simple as just I will do whatever is right and the characters who think that way tend to get themselves into trouble because I was talking about Ned not actually being that man in 10,000 who would actually sacrifice his his loved ones on behalf of abstract concepts of duty with the benefit of several books and show seasons worth of hindsight, I think we can conclude that the man Martin is actually sneakily describing here <laughs> is Stannis. <Yes. laughs> we're, re- we're recently coming off Eddard 15, which Stannis is framed partially as a potential savior. Ned saying, he's Robert's true heir. I hope he takes the throne. But also as a punisher, as a version of Ned who's been stripped of his humanity, of his love. Varus has that line. There is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. So this, this vision of a paragon Amon is talking about... Would that be heartwarming and inspiring or would it actually be terrifying to witness? The Night's Watch asks you to cast your heart into the fire, to defend life at the cost of all that makes life worth living. You either die fighting the zombies and join their ranks or you live long enough to see yourself become
2: one anyway. Hmm. And like we have to we have to also point out again with the gift of knowing what happens in the future, it's Ned's legacy and the love and devotion that he inspired that yes. keeps his memory alive and that is still motivating all of our core cast of characters in Westeros. You know, people aren't doing that for Stannis, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or at least not at least not in the show. We'll see how that we'll see how that works out in the books. But like yeah oh, th- Stannis's th-
1: legacy will be ash and dust and precisely because of the decisions he makes to get him there. Right. Because he's gonna again throw his heart into the fire. I think his sigil makes it very plain how that story ends and I think he'll have better motivations for doing so than someone like Euron, certainly. But it doesn't change the fact that I think the series is coming down very firmly on the side of that's not a good thing (laughs) for a person to do.
2: Right? Because so Eamon saying like love is the bane of honor. I like. I feel like the the takeaway after seeing how everything unfolds is that like love is the inspiration for honor a lot of the time. Like it's what motivates people to try and continue fighting for what they believe is right, and usually that comes down on the side of the things that are
0: closest to your heart. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. And no one knows
1: that better than Maester Eamon. I mean, these are not abstract questions for him any more than they are for John. Uh, remember what he says in season six, his warm memories of the life he lived before are more real to him than the cold, <laughs> hard reality of life on the wall. He still remembers the warmth of a brother's smile. Like he, He's picking that particular image for a very important reason, because that's Egg's smile he's thinking mm. of, not Robb Stark's. He knows from his own bitter experience that oaths are wind in words next to a life lived for love. The gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory. And our great tragedy. And so we get one of the big reveals in Book One that Aemon is a secret Targaryen. And I just you gotta love how well George unites character work, emotional themes, and world building here. Because Eamon's Targaryen heritage as just a fact easily could have come up in a neutral conversation between third parties, between John and Elsie Mormont, as it does later on in John's first chapter in Book Two. But Martin preserves the actual reveal for this scene. Because it not only fleshes out the Targaryen backstory, it perfectly brings all these chapters,
0: ideas, and themes together. Yeah, and it works really well as a reveal as not occurring before it actually does because it captures what Aemon is trying to communicate to Jon. Where Jon asks Aemon, who are you? And Aemon smiles that toothless smile back at Jon and says, only a maester of the Citadel, bound in service to Castle Black and the Night's Watch. In my order, we put aside our house names when we take our vows and don the collar. So where Mormont can't help but talk about Mage Mormont, his sister, or Jorah, his son, Aemon embodies the values of the Night's Watch, at least at this point in the story. He's Maester Aemon, once a Targaryen, but now a man sworn to the Citadel and the Night's Watch. It also works well on a meta level, because I'm sure George was just itching to do this reveal from the very beginning, but its timing and placement breathed naturally in the narrative. Aemon isn't the type of person to go about talking about a Targaryen name and his heritage and all the wonderful, awesome things that he's done in his life. It's only when he has the chance to learn John something that he finally does do his own reveal for John.
1: Absolutely. And he, he waits for this moment when John is yearning for Ned Stark and whenever he should, he should go off to, to save him and fight for him like Rob. He's saving it for this moment because it's not just that Aemon has his own story of grief at a distance like John. It's that in his story, Ned Stark's on the side of the villains. <laughs> He's on the side of the Baratheons and Lannisters who usurped the throne and came to power by wiping out Aemon's family down to even the little children. So this is a perfect example of what Aemon was talking about, what the Lord Commander was trying to get out with the gift of Longclaw, putting aside the past for the common good. After all, John and Aemon aren't enemies just because their families were on opposite sides of the rebellion, are they? By that same time, John and Danny don't necessarily have to be enemies just because their father figures were on different sides of the rebellion. But on the other hand... Aemon's eyes still shine with tears when he talks about poor Rainus and Egan Six, the dead innocence that Varus threw in Ned's face down in the black cells, another connection between these chapters. Just as Jon can't just forget Ned, and Ned can't just forget Lyanna, and Jorah can't just forget Jorah, Aemon can't just forget everyone he's lost and the crucial decisions he's made along the way, even as he's telling Jon trying to do so is the right thing. You gotta know Aemon's wondering to himself every night, just torturing himself, should I have taken the throne? Instead of my brother? Thus, I mean, I could have dodged Summerhall and the Mad King if I'd done that. Should I have tried to mentor Viserys in exile? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? And as Jeff was saying, with the, with the Lord Commander blaming himself for these age old institutional hmm. problems, these aren't very rational questions. Eamon admits that, you know, he's an old, frail, blind man. He can't really do much good for his family at this point. But these questions make sense emotionally, and they can't be logic away. They can't be hand waved away with an appeal to rationality and duty and the brotherhood of the Night's Watch. That just it just isn't enough. I think that that's what this chapter is getting across. It doesn't quell those feelings, and you know, John is likely to face that that same question of whether to wear that very same crown that Aemon rejected. I mean, R plus L equals J, just as, as as we've been saying, really is under the surface of this chapter. It really ties everything together because. Those are John's actual siblings that Eamon is mourning. The kids he's crying for, Rhaenys and Aegon 6, Those are those are in John's family. Those are those are kids who were murdered because of who their dad was. And if it had ever been revealed who John really was, Robert would have gone after him the same way. So again, this is not abstract. This is this is John's story that Eamon is telling.
2: I'm so sad again.
1: <laughs> right? It's that it's kind of chapter, and it, it goes out on that note, that note of sadness where Eamon... Is trying to make himself argue that love is poison the way Cersei does. But unlike Mormon, he, he just can't tell John that he should stay. He can't be final because he knows the cost mm. too well and he, he feels he has enough
0: blood on his hands already. Literal, I know it was. Yeah, that is 100% true. And man, whew, that is, this is a very deep, very sad chapter here. So I think that about transition transitions us to our foreshadowing groundwork portion of this chapter. So the most obvious setup we have for this chapter is Alistair Thorne, who we're less sad about leaving because fuck that guy, and his mission to warn the Crown about the Whites. You know, George really needs to kind of have Alistair out of the way. So assholes like us won't point out that it's a plot hole for the Lord Commander not to at least make <laughs> the attempt. But he also needs to prevent the cavalry from actually coming until it comes from an unexpected direction, namely status. Stat, I keep doing that. I, I got to stop doing that, right?
1: It's, it's a very specific version of Tourette's. I think you're in trouble. I don't think there's a treatment for that. We'll just we'll just have to put it to use on the podcast. Another bit of interesting groundwork that came like, to mind while we're reading this chapter is, as we've said before, Martin almost certainly hadn't invented the Blackfires at this point, in this, this early on in the series, which means that when he did, I'm, I'm betting he went back to this chapter, because he, he sets up this strong parallel between how Damon Blackfire is anointed at his father Egan for his hands and receives the Sword of Blackfire. It sounds so strongly like this wistful dream of John's in this chapter. Afterward, Lord Edward would declare that John had proved himself a true Stark and placed mm-hmm. ice in his hand. Even then, he had known it was only a child's folly. No bastard no bastard could ever hope to wield a father's sword. Mm. Catelyn will of course literally compare John to Damon Blackfyre <laughs> when we get to a storm of swords. So I think that Martin is just trying to set up a parallel there. I don't think John will make the decisions Damon made, but I think Martin is trying to show the the seed of that potential decision in both these bastards' cases.
2: It's also interesting because doesn't kind of like Catelyn has this sort of like caginess or like apprehension about John and him potentially taking the place of her sons, and it's Funny that in this chapter, John literally, like, thinks back to how ashamed he felt over, like, that wish of his to take Rob's place. And so it kind of proves that Catelyn's, like, worries there weren't entirely invented out of thin air. John didn't have any intention to act on them, but at the same time, it's just, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good dynamic because the, the hope is there, but also, yeah, Catelyn doesn't realize, if only she could read this chapter mm-hmm. and realize that Jon never had actually malign intentions towards her kids. And just as Robert sparked the invasion of Westeros by the, by the Dothraki when he was trying to prevent it. The only reason John would ever come close to rebelling against his Stark family is because of how Catelyn treated yeah, him. So if anything, she, she came close to creating the demon she was fearing, which is a, a strong theme and motif in the series as a whole. But
0: of course, it, this is not the last time John will face the temptation of Winterfell. No, because we get Stannis uh, – I'm stopping myself there from going too far. Well, we get Stannis when he comes up <laughs> to the wall where he speaks with John up on top of the wall itself and offers John the Stark name, Lordship and Legitimacy. And John is really, really tempted to take Stannis up on the offer. All he has to do is kind of get past the shame and guilt he feels, as well as kind of burn the godswood at Winterfell as well. Just minor, teeny tiny little things that you have to get over there. So... This conversation, and we don't know for sure whether George had the Stannis showing up at the wall idea in mind when he was writing a Game of Thrones, but it does feel that this conversation, much like the conversation about the sword itself, sets up the Blackfires, This conversation between Amon and Jon sets up the conversation between Stannis and Jon and Jon's eventual decision to not become John Stark of Winterfell, but rather become Lord Commander John Snow of the Night's Watch.
2: Yeah, his feelings here are so rooted in things that we'll see him grapple with in the future in the books. I also think the way that he responds to his friends and kind of like shirks away from their playfulness and their praise and like, come on, let's hang out, buddy. <laughs> and you're like, look at your sword and shoot the shit. The fact that he kind of chooses to step away from them and just doesn't feel like being around them, I think is a uh, groundwork for how he's going to behave once he eventually becomes Lord Commander, you know, ruling as a lonely Business And not only that, but like his, his sort of like PTSD and the trauma that he has and how he feels resentful of the people around him for not having experienced the same things that he has. And therefore, he feels like they can't possibly understand or relate to him. I think that it's possible that he like him and Daenerys are eventually going to have interesting things to talk about. <laughs> um it's sort of it's interesting to me that in the show they have avoided having them have any sort of meaningful conversation about like oh hey you're undead oh hey you're immune to fire and (laughs) went through a bunch of shit too um but yeah like john being set apart from his peers and again that goes back to his his thinking about the way that he found ghost and how he had been you know driven away from the others it is again sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways because he does a lot of the driving away himself
1: for sure and that, that becomes the connection then what is your relationship to this past you've left behind this family you've left behind how should he think about house stark how should maester aemon think about house targaryen how should the lord commander think about house mormont and there's no easy for answers for any of them if they try to tamp down that's just unrealistic and it's going to come out in some way or another But if they completely indulge it, then they just get really, really depressed, Mm -hmm. as we see in this chapter. And I think you can you can see Eamon's big monologue just resonate not only with John, but with the people in John's past.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like George. George is so good. (laughs) Like every almost every question that Eamon asks relates not only to someone related to John's life, but to Ned's often like the first thing he says, what is honor compared to a woman's love? Well, it would be great if we could ask. Rhaegar Targaryen, that as <laughs> he ran away with Leona Stark, feeding fuel to a war that would end with the near annihilation of House Targaryen and a baby born, who is Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, if only Jon could think back to those words when he falls in love with Ygritte, as you mentioned. And ha- I mean, even though Corin Halfhand ordered him to blend in with the wildlings, I think that Jon knows that part of himself traded in honor as a Night's Watch brother for the warmth and comfort of Ygritte. Mm-hmm. I mean, he becomes he becomes far more entangled in that than I think pure duty would have you know, ordered him. Um, and same thing again, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, but with Rob Stark, like how did Rob Stark feel when he fell into the bed of Jane Westerling, hmm. accepting the comfort of her love, even though the cost would eventually be his own life. And he also married her partially out of a duty and with honor because he didn't want to just leave this highborn girl who he had taken her virginity and be like, see you later. Yeah. Like have fun dealing with that in the rest of your life. He married her partially because it's, it was the right thing to do. They had sex and that's what happens with highborn teens. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I mean, it carries again into the next question. What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms? Well, Ned Stark knows the answer to that question. He knew it the moment that Lyanna placed Jon into his arms in the Tower of Joy, and she said, promise me, over and over again. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was theoretically his duty to tell the newly crowned King Robert Baratheon the truth about Prince Rhaegar and Lyanna, but he didn't. He didn't return home to his wife and his true-born baby Rob and tell them what happened. He... Made a promise and he kept it, and he knew that John would never be safe if anyone in the realm knew the truth. So he lied and he dishonored himself and his wife, and he swallowed that dishonor every time that John was present and any time that someone asked him about his bastard son. And he chose family over honor then, and he'll, he's about to do it again with Sansa, as we've as we've touched upon. And then last question that. Aemon presents is the memory of a brother's smile which Emmett you pointed out you know he's thinking about a different brother but the last time that John ever saw Rob they smiled at each other in the snow and there was that really beautiful scene of of John leaving Winterfell and John says like you Starks are hard to kill and he says it so like confidently (laughs) and it's a great scene in the show um, and it's so heartbreaking to watch again because you know that that's not true and that it's going to be Rob and Ned who will lose lose their lives soon And John and Bran and Arya and Sansa are going to be left behind, and baby Rickon in the books. (laughs) Sorry, I can't. Like Rickon is such like a non-character when when I when I think about like the bigger picture. Sometimes I'm excited for him to come back into the fold, but yeah. And it this brother smile um, line gets inverted with Arya, who Hmm. you know we haven't talked about her at all much in this chapter, but. Later, you know, she thinks that Needle was Jon Stowe's smile when she is trying to debate whether or not to give up her entire identity. Again, like what we we're talking about with what the Kingsguard does, the House of Black and White tries to demand the same thing of Arya so that she can become no one. And she specifically chooses not to. She chooses to keep that part of herself alive. And Jon is the thing that is tied so closely to her sword and that identity that she keeps. And so, Yeah.
1: As you were saying, this is what actually fuels honor and duty and your best self. These are not the things you must purge to be your best self. This is what makes you who you are. And so ab- abandoning this, these things have has really kind of broken Eamon inside and it's so sad to witness because he's a genuinely great guy who never wanted power for himself. But power found a way to touch him anyway. As he says, that the dragon dreams destroyed his brothers, everyone. And it's 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 not the crown that actually makes you happy. That's a point that Martin, of course, makes over and over in the series in various ways. From Robert to Stannis to Viserys, all, all these characters are kind of destroyed by the pursuit of the crown because the crown is the one ring. I mean, the crown is just the source of, of power and corruption that just leaves you a ghost. And I think, you know, Aemon might be wondering if he made the right choice all those years ago. As you say, John's a reluctant hero, so there's reasons for him to be the king, be the hero, but there's also good reasons for him not to want to go down that path.
0: What you guys are saying reminded me so strongly of what happens in John's final chapter in *Dance with Dragons*, where that question is ultimately brought to John, where he gets the pink letter from Ramsay Bolton, and I'll just read it because it's one of my favorite paragraphs from from *A Dance with Dragons*, and it's: John flexed the fingers of his sword hand. The Night's Watch takes no part. He closed his fists and opened it again. What you propose is nothing less than treason. He thought of Rob with snowflakes melting in his hair. Kill the boy and let the man be born. He thought of Bran clambering over a tower wall, agile as a monkey, of Rickon's breathless laughter, of Sansa brushing out Lady's coat and singing to herself. You know nothing, Jon Snow. He thought of Arya, her hair as tangled as a bird's nest. I made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want my bride back. I want my bride back. I think we had best change the plan, John said, this torment. So ultimately, John's arc is leading to, to that moment in A Dance with Dragons where he finally leaves aside this kind of robot mentality that Aemon and Mormont want him to adopt. And he ends up making the choice. Ultimately, that Aemon says, what is your choice? I leave it up to you to make the ultimate choice. Well, that ultimate choice only comes four books after this event from A Game of Thrones John 8, but it is such a satisfying conclusion to John's arc in A Dance of Dragons and John's overall arc in terms of the entire story of Jon Snow.
1: Beautifully said, sir. And I think that about takes us into our theory section of the podcast. And there's a big question that pops out of this chapter once you come back to it, knowing about R plus L equals J. And that's the question of, does Maester Eamon know about R plus L equals J? Does he know that he hasn't lost his family after all, that he is in fact speaking to another Targaryen? Has he read the books and other requests that we're asking him? Has, has Maester Eamon been on westeros.org? Does he know about all of the things? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's 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 a great question. And for those who are reading our show notes, check out the Davos Fingers Patreon podcast episode, which is called Team Jon. And there's a link for that there in our show notes themselves. And that does kind of ask us an interesting question: whether Amon knows who Jon Snow actually is. Does he know these actually Aegon Targaryen? It's an open question, I think. Right.
1: Well, let's lay out the evidence for Amon knowing about knowing the truth of Jon's heritage. As we learn in A Feast for Crows, Aemon regularly communicated with Rhaegar about the Prince that was promised, the Red Comet, the nature of prophecy, all that jazz. So it's not unreasonable to think Aemon might have known about the revelation we see Rhaegar reach in the House of the Undying. There must be one more. The dragon must have three heads. If he did, he might have put two and two together when he heard about Rhaegar running off with Lyanna, especially if there is some sort of premeditated ice and fire recipe at work that Rhaegar was following by specifically running off with a a Stark girl. And later on, of course, yeah, Aemon repeatedly compares Jon to Egg, which is a very telling <laughs> reference point. When he leaves the Wall, he leaves Jon the Jade Compendium to read, which makes reference to Azor Ahai, which might also be a clue in that direction. And, of course, he perceives that Stannis' quote-unquote Lightbringer sword isn't the real deal. In the same chapter, where he nudges Sam along to get Jon elected Lord Commander. All of which might suggest that Aemon knows Jon is Rhaegar's son and a candidate for the promised prince of high Ziggy starless <laughs> Superstar. <laughs> and is subtly positioning him where he needs to be in order to fulfill the prophecy and save the multiverse from Thanos. So Exactly. There's a great irony there, of course, that like, only a blind man would see the truth. As Sam says in this chapter, I mean, I think he knew. He sees things no one else sees. So that might be a clue that, that Aemon has, has seen through. John's stark disguise and
0: seeing the Targaryen within. On the other hand, though, we do have some evidence against this theory. There's a lot of ifs up there, isn't there, Emmett? Not unreasonable conclusions, but there's, you know, it's kind of a house of cards if you really want to get down to it. We know that Amon had told Sam that he was dying, that he knew that Rhaegar no longer believed himself to be the prince that was promised, and rather saw Aegon VI, his son, as that particular figure. As such, Amon might well believe the dream to be dead as of a Game of Thrones. That kind of makes sense, given all of the things that he's telling Jon. Because Amon has plenty of other reasons to take an interest in Jon. You know, he's the next generation leadership for the Night's Watch. And we're all about to go fight the others and the White Walkers. And they have just risen some dead night And they have just rose... And they have just resurrected some dead Night's Watchmen and had them fight on their behalf south of the Wall. So maybe that's what they're looking at John as particularly, not as some sort of secret target. Maybe that's what Aemon is looking at John as specifically, not some sort of secret Targaryen, but rather as a cudgel to take out the others in the White Walkers. And if Aemon knew more than all that, he could have provided some more than subtle hints to John. right? You'd think at some point he could have been like... John, let's, let us let me put it on my arm around your shoulder and let you know what's actually going on here before you make this monumental decision to become the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch before I am heading off on a ship bound for Old Town. And above all, if Aemon knew that John was Rhaegar's son and the outcome of an attempt to create the prince that was promised, why does he then suddenly become so convinced that Daenerys Targaryen is the prince that was promised and talks about the translation errors and all that sort of stuff? The evidence against kind of feels a bit stronger than the evidence for, but I think it's a really fun theory. And it's worth thinking about and potentially having more revelations come out in the Winds of Winter. Perhaps John will find a note from Aon in his chambers or something like that, being like, John, read this, flip over the cover, flip over the side. Oh, you are actually a Targaryen. Good to know.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely that and not Helen right. Reed. A, a, a secret, a secret letter Always under leave the a mattress. Note Written by blind Mace Raymond is going to be how John finds out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the so, letters are all yeah, like off character. John has to read it over the course of the book and
2: solve it by the end. Yeah, I yeah I I can see I definitely see the case for both sides. Um, I personally like to be in my feelings, and I appreciate the more tragic. Dynamic at play if like Amon is literally mourning the ruin of his house and the death of his family with John right in front of him and doesn't know that he's speaking to another person who's related to him and another child who, like you said, like Amon is crying over John's half siblings. Like for Amon to be that emotional about the children and to like not not acknowledge that John is also standing in front of him as one of. Rhaegar's children would would feel a little off to me. I mean, Jon is the only living embodiment of House Stark and Targaryen. He's this young king, lying in wait, frozen in indecision at the farthest end of Westeros, and Aemon trying to help him without knowing that he's a Targaryen is far more poignant to me than Aemon being like some sneaky old man like up to his hijinks at the wall (laughs) like like, (laughs) like like trying to tell john but not quite telling john like they're each other's families and they're the families that they both yearn for and i just think it's far more george to put those two in the same place and not actually let them have the satisfaction of realizing that they're they're each other's kin
1: I agree, especially when it comes to Aemon reaching so desperately for Daenerys at the end and not being able to reach her. There's just such a poignant irony if he had a relative right next to him all along, not so far away in Essos, but just didn't know it.
0: Yeah, and plus you also have the fact that Aemon and Lord Commander Mormont act as father figures to Jon, and that's much more important for Jon's growth than simply Aemon realizing that Jon is actually his secret great-great-great-great-uncle? No, wait, great 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 nephew. So that's important for John that he has father figures that are helping to shape and mold him for his eventual likely kingship arc, come the winds of winter and a dream of spring. And that's also what's going to make John a much more interesting figure, come the winds of winter, that all of these figures have shaped him to be a king without even knowing it. I think that makes up for a much more powerful narrative in A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Agreed. And I believe that just about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones John 8. So thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks so much, Kim, for coming out. We had a great yeah. time. So where, where can we find you? And tell us more about your book.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kim R. Renfro. That's R-E-N-F-R-O. Uh, all of my writing on both Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin related things, as well as other pop culture, is on insider.com. And then my book is coming out. It's being published by Simon & Schuster. Nice. It's available for pre-order now. Yeah, on Amazon. You can also find it on like Barnes & Noble. Uh, IndieBound um, mm-hmm. is your resource if you have like a local bookstore and you'd rather support local businesses. I'm all about that. You can pre-order it at all those places. Um, it'll be out on October 8th. And so, unofficial guide to Game of Thrones, hit shelves October 8th. Should be a fun ride for the rest of this season. I'm super... I'm just so glad to be a part of this community. It's so amazing, and you two are such a big part of that, so thank, thank you, you for having me be on your podcast and making me laugh on Twitter. Or cry when you're <laughs> tweeting about frickin' Brienne and Jamie. That's fine. You can just... Oh. I apologize for nothing. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. It's it's good. They're happy tears. It's fine. Everything's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. We're, we're it's fine, that me with the
0: dog, with everything fine, with the fire going on right Yeah, above.
2: that's me, except it's, like, raining and I'm crying. Right. That's me sitting at my desk yes. for the night.
0: So we're really excited about your book. I have actually pre-ordered my own copy, so I'm very excited to get it. Oh, so I uh, hope you uh, – Thank I uh, hope all of you folks who are listening uh, follow Emmons in my example and pre-order Kim's book. It's going to be amazing and awesome. And I can't wait to read the final product for it. So thanks, Kim, so much for joining us. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, all the places you find your podcasts. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash A-S-O-I-A-F where you can find us doing special episodes like our most recent one which is about the night lamp theory how Stannis will wreck the phrase in the winds of winter as well as getting early access to episodes of our main episodes and early access to our weekly Game of Thrones review and analysis episodes so if you guys are interested in doing that and supporting us we really appreciate those who you have but if you're interested check us out at ASOIAF.
1: check us out on Twitter at ASOIAF, or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com Personally, you can find me at Pork Quentin on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, Vice and So join us next week for our Game of Thrones Season 8 Episode 3 episode, coming for patrons on Tuesday and for everyone on Wednesday. To reemphasize, we have the Night Lamp Patreon bonus episode for all $5 and above patrons a month. And as well as next week, man, we're doing so many fucking podcasts, Emmett. It's just it's so (laughs) many goddamn podcasts. Oh, but join us next week for Daenerys 7, in which Daenerys Targaryen has to confront the stomach-churning violence that goes along with staking her claim to the Iron Throne. That's the price of it, anyways. But don't worry, Danny, there's a priestess named Miri Mazdur who could make all your problems go away.
1: My aunt, Miri Mazdur, I (laughs) love her so much. I've said before and a lot of people have said that Danny's supporting cast is not necessarily as great as the supporting cast of a lot of other major, major POVs in the series but the one major exception to that is Mary Mosko. Mm-hmm. I love the role she plays in Danny's storyline and I love that she just kind of comes out of nowhere and completely takes over like the last 15% of this book. So we're, we're going to have a lot to say about her and that's going to
0: be a fun episode for sure. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for Kim for coming on and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. <laughs>